Welcome to the Who's Left podcast, a show about Indiana politics, history, and culture from the unapologetic perspective of the Hoosier left. My name is Scott Aaron Rogers, and I'm recording from Bloomington. Today on the podcast, a return visit from Jesse Brown. Last year, the upstart Democratic Socialist upset Indianapolis City Council Vice President Zach Adamson in the Democratic primary before coasting to victory in November's general election. I spoke with Jesse in October just before the big win. He took the oath of office at the beginning of the year and left his job to focus on governing full-time. We'll talk about his first month and a half in office, which has been anything but boring. State Senator Aaron Freeman, the guy whose picture you may have seen recently dicking around on his phone while Cassandra Crutchfield tearfully told the story of her daughter Hannah, killed by a reckless driver on East Washington Street, that guy is the sponsor of Senate Bill 52, which would shut down the Indigo Blue Line Rapid Transit Project. The Blue Line, in addition to drastically improving bus service in the Circle City, would add many pedestrian safety improvements to the Crutchfields neighborhood, the kind that might have saved her daughter, the kind that might save countless children's lives going forward. Freeman, who allegedly has no soul, is owned and operated by several donors in the auto industry. But this whore's biggest client is Ray Skillman. Obviously, car dealers want people to drive instead of use public transportation, but according to Black Indie Live, Freeman's sugar daddy also manages several buy-here-pay-here lots, which have been identified as being predatory and targeting low-income residents with bad credit who might opt for public transportation with Indigo. Brown's District 13 is home to many of those kind of residents, whom the leech Skillman would love to suck dry at a 24.99 annual percentage rate. Indianapolis wants the blue line and voted overwhelmingly to raise their own taxes to pay for it. His constituents want the blue line. They're asking him to fight for it, and Jesse is willing to oblige. State Republicans have overridden local governments on municipal projects and ordinances, minimum wage, plastic bag bans, puppy mill prohibition, light rail, and renter protection, among others, many times over the past several years. To, uh, to paraphrase Freeman, quote, they're all for local government until it's stupid, end quote. Well, who gets to decide what's stupid? Hoosiers in communities all over the state think state preemption and Aaron Freeman are stupid. Brown said it out loud and is organizing against the GOP overreach. His tactics have drawn the ire of some Indianapolis Democrats. We'll talk about that, and I'll have thoughts afterward. But first, please give me your money. Who's Left is dedicated to calling out Indiana lawmakers, their financial backers, and the networks of people actively working to make our lives worse. Those whose policies endanger children. Those that sow grief in our homes and communities. I will work to highlight these bad actors so we can replace them with more empathetic leadership. I will also shine the spotlight on the Hoosier activists, organizations, and elected officials who are doing the hard work to build a more just, equitable, and compassionate Indiana. But I can't do this without you. Right now, the only income I bring to my household is from this project. I rely on your financial support from paid subscriptions over at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. 
For $5 a month or only $50 a year, you can help me push our state in a better direction and help my family in the process. Even if a paid subscription doesn't work for you at this time, you can still help. Subscribe at the free level over on Substack. Set your favorite podcast player to auto-download new episodes of the show. Rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you use. Follow us on social media at facebook.com slash who's left. That's H-O-O-S left. I'm personally at scottrodge78, that's S-C-O-T-T-R-O-G-7-8, on Instagram, threads, and the platform everyone still calls Twitter. I'm also on Mastodon at scottrodge78 at hoosier.social. Most importantly, pass on the word. Forward the newsletter to a colleague. Don't just like, but share on social media. Send it up via smoke signal. With your investment, a full-time Who's Left looks like new content every day. It looks like full coverage of the 2024 election cycle in Indiana and beyond. And it looks like zooming out to see how the forces at work in our state function nationally, even globally. I do not plan on paywalling any content because I believe in open access to information, and your support helps make that content freely available to all Hoosiers, but I need your investment in order to do this full-time. For a wide view of the global forces at work, check out Monday's episode with guest Tom Levan. We reset the table, putting the current crisis of social breakdown in historical perspective. Tuesday, Mad Voters' Chelsea McDonald stopped by to summarize the first half of the Indiana General Assembly's 2024 session. Yesterday, I talked about the Democratic organizational structure with Monroe County Party Chair David Henry. Those are all available wherever you get your podcasts or at scottaaronrogers.substack.com. Tomorrow, I'll have a written piece up over there. Hope to have you aboard for the full ride. Now here's my interview with Jesse Brown. Jesse Brown, welcome back to the Who's Left podcast. You'll think it was only yesterday. It's really great to be back. It's, it's you know what, there's been a lot in between that last uh, interview and this one. But uh, it's for another time. Let's um, let's get into it. So you're, you're into your first uh, month now, you know, uh, a little over a month uh, on the Indianapolis City Council representing the uh, east side there, District 13. Uh, how's that been? Okay, so I'm, I always struggle to encapsulate this whole experience in just a word or two. So if you don't mind, I'll give a slightly longer answer. It has both been the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. It has been the most rewarding of any professional experience I've ever had in my entire life. It has been the most stressful of any professional experience I've ever had in my entire life. It has been the most surprising experience I've ever had in my professional life. And uh, I know I'm just getting started. So it's also been the deepest and quickest learning I've ever had in my personal or professional life. So uh, not to start out as a socialist politician by quoting Lenin, but he has <laughs> famous quote about uh, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are days when decades happen, and that has just been resonating with me a lot because it just feels like so much is changing in my life, in the district, in the city, in the state, uh, which is both really inspiring and also has been a lot. So I'm just like trying to make sure I sleep enough and you know do the self care I need to be in it for the long haul because I got 47 months at least, assuming I only have one term, which I hope is not the case. So just gotta make sure I'm. Uh, somewhere between the sprint and the marathon, right? 
Yeah, yeah, very good. So um, I assume on the council you've got uh, some sort of committee or subcommittees that you uh, sit on. What are your what are your focuses? Uh, what have you been uh, paying attention to mostly? Yeah, so my problem throughout my adult life has always been I'm interested in everything and I always want to learn and kind of figure out what's going on all over the place. And so, frankly, I just need to focus a little bit more. So the issues I ran on were around infrastructure and transportation. So I don't know, we're going to get into that a little bit later with Indigo, uh, with bicycle infrastructure, pedestrian infrastructure and safety, uh, et cetera, and then just maintaining the roads. And then the second issue was good union jobs for any companies that receive tax incentives. Um, so that continues to be a focus, although I've had less ability to weigh in on that just yet. And then finally, transparency and accountability in government, which is something that luckily, uh, being in the government, I could do by myself. And so I'm yeah. trying to navigate, you know, for example, in the Democratic caucus, we have rules about confidentiality and those rules exist for a very good reason the point is that you know all of us democrats should be able to get into a room you know and hash out our differences and sometimes those are pretty severe differences i consider myself a socialist there's 18 other people in the room who do not and some of whom don't even really feel like socialists should be sitting at the table with them and so you know we're kind of at loggerheads and fighting but the important part is that we have those fights in private figure out a path forward and then leave the room knowing what we each can do. And so uh, I'm not saying I've done it perfectly so far because I don't think I have, but the goal is to be as transparent and accountable to my constituents without betraying anyone's trust or, you know, sharing screenshots or, you know, otherwise putting people on stress for what was a private conversation. Um, so those are the things I ran on. I mentioned that I'm already moving forward with just like sharing what I'm doing with my constituents in a newsletter. The committees that I was assigned to, uh, so the committee process is also kind of interesting. There are uh, eight or 10 committees that really do most of the main work of the council. Uh, the council as a full body meets once a month and typically it's not always this way and this will have a negative connotation that I'm really not intending, but typically rubber stamps what the committees have asked the council to do. And so, for example, there's a public works committee that'll decide, you know, whether we fund some big new project or agree with DPW, the Department of Public Works' request to do a, a strange new, not strange, uh, uh, innovative new road project or cyclist project, mm -hmm. um, something like that. Public Works Committee will really be where the debate is, where most of the public comment happens. Once it passes out of committee with a with a approved recommendation, for the most part, the council respects that committee's work and just moves forward. Um, so these committees are all really important, and the way they're assigned is leadership takes a list of everybody's preferred committees and then crunches the numbers. And of course, there is some politics involved and seniority, et cetera. Not official rules, so much as just kind of, uh, you know, we don't get to see exactly how the sausage is made, but either way, they have just among the Democrats, 19 of us on this body who all have right, preferences that are in conflict with each other. They have to do some fancy calculus to try to find ways to make everybody happy. Uh, so all that is to say, I did not get the committee assignments I really wanted, uh, but I got not the committee assignments I would have really hated either. So I feel confident I can take these committee placements and make some really positive change in the city. The three committees I'm assigned to 
One of them that I really insisted I needed to be a part of due to campaign promises was the Municipal Corporations Committee. Uh, so this committee oversees a lot of the public-private partnerships that exist in Indianapolis, and those would include, for example, uh, the Indianapolis Public Library, which I famously had some very strong disagreements with uh, their CEO hiring practices. Yeah. The Indigo, which I am the counselor who rides the bus more than any other counselor and have firsthand experience promised to run on that issue. Uh, the Indianapolis Housing Authority, uh, or Indianapolis Housing Agency, rather, IHA, which uh, two of the remaining few public housing towers in the city are in my district. And so I represent lots of people on public housing. And so I have a very strong opinion on how those agencies should be run as well. There's also the airport authority. There's like two or three other sure. uh, health and human uh, or health and hospital corporation, rather. All those are under the auspices of uh, municipal corporations. And it's weird because they're all private entities that don't report directly to the government, but their budgets are still approved. And we can ask questions and call for accountability and often appoint at least some of their board members. So it is a powerful position. We haven't actually met yet this year, uh, but we should be meeting in March, and I'm excited to see where we go with that. Committee number one. Committee <laughs> number two is Parks and Recreation, which I think is actually a much more powerful and important committee than people give it credit for. Uh, you know, Indianapolis, because of Unigov, Indianapolis, Marion County, is bigger in square mileage than New York City. And so there are a huge number of parks and uh, public recreation areas some of which are really well-maintained and have awesome stuff going on, new playground facilities, pools staffed by lifeguards who are teenagers from the area making $15 an hour. They can be huge. Like There are public safety implications to that, of course. Uh, yeah, There's a lot that we could do to make a better city, thanks to our parks. And then there's also parks in my neighborhood that are just like full of trash and really poorly maintained. And so mm. it's it's a budget issue and it's figuring out how we can get people in the parks more to help uh you know clean up as they go or or show some love for the parks that makes it easier to maintain so I, I imagine that'll be a very fun committee as well i really like our chairman jeremy uh, our chairman jared evans uh has great ideas to mostly meet not in the halls of power but in the parks themselves just to force brilliant to be um you know be actually here personally and see you the good and the bad and the ugly and just really get a better sense of what our constituents are going through, which I think is amazing. Uh, and then the third committee is one where I think it is actually incredibly important, uh, dare I say, for human life, even though it is the newest and quote unquote least powerful committee on the city council. So uh, Chairman John Barth heads it up. It is called the Environmental Sustainability Committee. It's only been around since 2021. Um, I worry that council leadership might be treating it like the kids' table, because if you look at who was assigned to this, mm -hmm. all freshman counselors and Chairman John Barth, uh, and historically, it doesn't have the power to approve any budgets or make any decisions. Uh, I think uh, Chairman Barth was in the IBJ a month or two ago that says, really, so far, it's been a place for counselors to learn about environmental sustainability rather than legislate on it. Um, I'm hoping to change that, especially because we have some really ambitious goals about pedestrian and cyclist safety, which has sustainability um, elements to it. Uh, solar energy, circular economy, where like businesses are sending their cardboard away to be recycled and make money rather than fill it up a landfill, right? 
So I think that could be a really awesome committee as well. We also have not met yet this year. So that was me talking forever. I'm going to try to do less of that during this interview, but that's the committees I'm on and kind of what they, what they're up to. Hey, no, no, that's, that's good. I asked you to catch us up. You caught us up very well. So obviously the reason I asked you here today is because we've had some, uh, some, some Jesse Brown sightings in the news lately, uh, starting, um, around the, the, the blue line and you are a passionate advocate for, uh, you know, good public transportation. Um, so tell us what the blue line is, was, is, um, and, um, we can go from there and talk about uh, what's going on with it at the state house. Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody not from Indianapolis, you wouldn't have any reason to know this, but our, uh, again, it's a public private partnerships. So it's an independent corporation that has some relationship with the city called Indigo, which is our, again, it's our bus system. Uh, it already has been extremely constrained by state house overreach. So for example, for a city our size, like I said, bigger than New York City by square mileage, the right answer for rapid transit is light rail. We have a state government who has banned municipalities from working on light rail. So we just cannot do what all good science says is the right thing to do. So as a result, Indigo came up with another plan, which is to move uh, the way the buses operate. Right now, just a few years ago, we built a new transit center, the Julia Carson Transit Center, right in downtown Indianapolis. Uh, and we have what's called a hub and spoke model, where yeah, basically all roads lead to Rome, so to speak. Every bus goes to the transit center, which is awesome if you're trying to get downtown and your work is right there. Mm-hmm. But for example, if you're a city councilor like me up near 21st Street, and where I want to go is just a mile down the road to 10th Street, the only way I can get there on a bus is to go all the way downtown, wait for another bus, go all the way back to the east side to just be a mile south. Yeah. So yeah, it works really well for the main uh, use case for public transit, which is to get to and from work. It doesn't work well at all if you have errands to run, if you're going to a few different places. Uh, and Indigo knows that. That was never the goal. We just wanted a simple hub and spoke model to get us through what we could build and get a capital campaign going for more intensive bus lines. That capital campaign has uh, created the appetite and has started building three rapid transit lines. There's the red line, which will take you all the way from the south side of town, University of Indianapolis area, uh, through downtown, all the way up to Broad Ripple and beyond to the north. So you can get from downtown to go get a drink, come back home. Uh, it's really quick. You don't have to, it's a kind of European style where you, it's an honor system. You pay for your ticket and occasionally an inspector will come by and ask for proof. But other than that, you just walk on, walk off without having to back up a line while people scan in and, and pay. Sure, sure, sure. Let this run. Red line's done. There is still some frustration from businesses about the red line because, um, it was never intended to operate in a vacuum, right? It's our only bus rapid transit line, and it still has the same mm-hmm. problem I mentioned earlier. I rode it a couple of weeks ago. The section of my trip on the red line was amazing. Then I got to the transit yeah. center and had to wait 48 minutes for my bus to go home. So this amazing, fast bus rapid transit line didn't make it so riding a bus was anything less than awful for me right now, um, which isn't Indigo's fault. They're building towards it. The second line, which is uh, a little over halfway done, maybe more than that, um, but it's the purple line, which goes across 38th Street, 
which is a huge mm-hmm. uh, economic corridor and also um, where, quite frankly, a lot of people of color and black people live. And so this allows people to get across the city um, a lot more easily. And so it's an east-west line. The blue line, okay. which was 90% through design phase, and we're like just about ready to start breaking some earth. Uh, we have applied for and received, I think it's like $160 million in federal funding for this project, was to go along Washington Street, which could do a number of great things. So Washington Street is the old US 40, which is the the national road. Um, in the 70s, there were 30,000 cars a day that would travel on Washington Street. It's now down to 17,000. And so the road is very poorly maintained. There's a lot more lanes that we actually need with the traffic that goes through there. But it's also the bus line that is the most full. It's already got the most ridership from Indigo. Uh, it's about the only place in the city where I've ever had to wait for the next bus because the bus was literally too full to let more people on. Uh, so there is a very big need. It also would go all the way out to the Indianapolis International Airport, where right now it's difficult to get a bus to Pinea. I have a day. Um, and, you know, an Uber could be 60 bucks from my place on the east side of town, uh, or you have to pay 20 bucks a day to park. So it could save people a ton of money to have a bus rapid transit system to get you across town into the airport. Uh, so that's a very long answer for what is the blue line and kind of the context we're talking about, though. So basically, it sounds like these these dedicated, like this red line, blue line, purple line, are as close as you can get to having a train go down the the road, like, you know, have a, a subway or a light rail or whatever, um, without actually having a train. And it's, and it's, and it's kind of a unique, uh, there's a lot less upfront cost, I imagine, in doing a, 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 a dedicated bus line than there is a, a, a train. That's right. Uh, and the way the infrastructure is being built if we ever had a state government that would allow light rail, much of what we're building for the bus rapid transit could be repurposed for light rail. We've got all the right of way and the space and everything. I see. Um, and so this is different than just like a bus route in that they have dedicated lanes, right? So what does that what does that look like if if folks haven't seen uh Sure. in practice. Yeah. So in Indianapolis, there are dedicated lanes along the red line. We're doing the same thing for the purple line. And the goal is to do the same thing for the blue line. And those dedicated lanes are basically central lanes. So you've got cars on the outside and then the middle lanes are just for buses. And so that makes sure buses get by so quickly that even though they're using the same streets that cars are using, they end up making better time than cars do, even while stopping to pick up passengers and let passengers off at, at different stations. Um, and I'll admit, it, it doesn't work quite as well as promised just yet. Again, the red line operating in a vacuum can't can't work as well as we know it eventually will. Um, but it still works much better than the other bus lines. Trust me, as a person who rides the bus all the time, you, you yeah. much rather ride the red line buses than the alternative. Uh, but the other part of the infrastructure that would be really helpful for light rail in the future is that there are big platform stations in the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. So if you wait in the medium, the bus just kind of pulls up and, you know, old, like old school buses that work on regular roads then have to kind of kneel, right? So they lower with their yep. hydraulics to open the doors to let people on. If somebody has a wheelchair, that's extremely difficult. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problems with it. And then everybody's standing in line waiting to get on and pay the driver. Um, 
These, since they're lifted up, they have less wear and tear on the hydraulics. Uh, you just walk right in or wheel right in on your wheelchair. And again, you've paid already on the platform rather than on the train. So it just expedites everything. People get to and from easier, less friction to get on and off the bus. Uh, so that's one of the huge benefits of the dedicated lanes. There's also special signals up above that tell a bus driver when they can go because the way the traffic lights work, sometimes buses can go when nobody else can just to make sure if they have to, uh, if they take a wide turn or something like that, there's less risk. Of a yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen these. I've been up there a couple of times. Yeah. Seen the red light in action. Yeah. It could be a little, you know, disconcerting at first, but it, you know, you've got protected curb on both sides, right? Like a car can't accidentally drive in the bus lane. You got the platform right. in the middle, very train-like. Um, okay. Sounds great. $160 million in federal funding. Sounds like a lot of it's paid for. Yeah. How big is this project overall? Is the city responsible for some? Is the state responsible for some? How does that work? Yeah, it's mostly city funds. There's a little bit of state funds. And then Indigo, uh, because of bad faith Republican legislation, if I don't mind characterizing it myself, uh, Indigo was forced to create their own foundation and raise private money for it mm. as well, which they have done. And so they're also paying with some money that they've collected separately from fares, et cetera. So I think oh, all in, so this I, is like $260 million is the size and shape of this project. Not all of those dollars go through my district. Uh, you know, like Andy Nielsen, my fellow counselor, who I have tons of respect for, represents Irvington. And also has been fighting hard on this issue, meeting with business owners, making sure to find consensus, move it forward. Uh, and then it goes west all the way to the airport. So it goes through several counselors' districts. Um, sure. But for mine in particular, my section of Washington Street is not Irvington. It is economically devastated. It needs a ton of help. Um, you know, and and all the business owners I've talked to, literally everyone has been in favor of this. Very good. So this, this and 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 how's the the red line bed for businesses up uh, up and down its route? It's a mixed bag. There are certainly business owners along the red line who have complained to me uh, and just said like, "Hey, listen to my perspective." And I'm always willing to listen, so I have. And some of it does seem to be in good faith. So, for example, because of those awesome dedicated lanes we talked about in Indianapolis, folks are used to just being able to turn left right into wherever they want to go. That was already pretty difficult on like Meridian or College, and there are roads like Benford Boulevard slash Fall Creek where you couldn't do that anyway, uh, but there also weren't a ton of businesses right along that for the areas where you're not allowed to do a left turn. Now that there's medians in the road, there are often times when people have to kind of pull a U-turn, like go past a business, pull a U-turn out of a proper spot to find parking or to get to a business they want to get to, and that's annoying if you're not used to it. It just is, you know? Uh I think it's something that once you're used to isn't a big deal at all and might take an extra two minutes out of your day. Uh, but especially if you're not used to it, it's the same as when bike lanes first came around. Drivers talked about how they were infuriating, they didn't understand, uh, they didn't get it. And now most drivers I've talked to have realized, oh, it's actually better. Now I don't have to wait behind somebody's bike. They're off to the side and I can just keep room vrooming. Um, and so I think <laughs> much of this is just like a cultural change, which hasn't had time to really, you know, uh, really resonate yet or, or infiltrate sure. culture. Uh, but there are people who, you know, talked about the fact that during construction of these, uh, um, dedicated lanes, since they, it was a lot of work. It was hundreds of millions of dollars of work to get all these done during construction, businesses suffer often. And so there's some people who claim their business went out of business due to the red line. Um, 
you know, there's there's people who make bad faith claims as well. Like I've seen people who bought their business knowing the red line was going to be constructed and then complained when it was constructed. It's just like, well, that seems like poor planning on your part more than, you know, you have a 30 year business that's being shut down because of the red line. Uh, but I know that there were some some hiccups and some bumps in the road. And so I was really glad to see for this Blue Line project, uh, Visit Indy and uh, Downtown Indy have all worked together and the Chamber of Commerce as well. So like, you know, this is me, the socialist saying, yay, business interests. Um, but they worked really hard to come up with a program where businesses can get a 0% loan uh, if they need money to just float them through this construction period. Uh, I think we could do more than that. I think we can have... Indigo and counselors like me meet regularly with the contractors and the business owners and just like figure out, okay, what's working, what's not, how can we make this work better? Uh, Counselor Nielsen did an amazing job of getting Indigo to agree to stop construction in uh, Irvington during the month of October, since they have a gigantic Halloween fest right in the middle of the street. Yeah. So they didn't want to harm, you know, the neighborhood feeling or the, the economic activity there. So I think from my perspective, Indigo has been nothing but reasonable. And the very real concerns that some business owners have are not anywhere close to enough to to derail this giant project that will be so beneficial for both businesses and consumers after that. So between Indigo and the city and their foundation and, you know, the businesses, it, it, it sounds like it's pretty well being handled by... The, the, the local folks who have a stake in this. How did the state house come to become involved? Well, since about 2016, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but our supermajority Republican state house has increasingly intervened in matters of local governance. And so, you know, this isn't the only thing that they've fought us on. Uh, there's a reason we cannot raise the minimum wage. It's because the state house has said municipalities can't raise or can't establish a local minimum wage. Uh, we can't ban plastic bags, even if both our yep. businesses and our consumers want to do that. State house says, nope, that's not good enough. Um, there, We can't uh, regulate bad landlords. So there was a recent situation where even Todd Rokita joined in a case suing uh, a landlord that was taking money from... I hope I'm not messing up. I know he interviewed on a couple cases. I believe this was one that he interviewed on. Uh, landlord was taking money from their renters and then not paying the utility bills. And so people's water were getting shut off, even though they had paid the bill. The landlord was the middleman and the city had very limited tools to hold them accountable or discourage them from owning other properties in the city. When that's just egregiously bad behavior, uh, but the apartment owner's uh, lobby is very strong in the state. And so... Yes, the state house has said, no, you can't regulate those landlords. You can't uh, establish escrow for uh, rent escrow. So when situations like that occur, um, tenants could just say, hey, we'll put the money over here so you know we've got it, but you're not touching that until you actually fix this stuff. Um, that's what many other states do. State houses in Indianapolis cannot do that. Um, on and on and on. They just kind of uh, play whack-a-mole. Anytime something progressive or locally popular comes up, the state says, no, you can't do it. And for Indigo specifically, that's taken several different bills, um, some of which passed, some of which didn't. But uh, Senator Aaron Freeman has been kind of spearheading a lot of the attacks on Indigo. And that has looked like, A, the requirement to have foundation funding and private funding, 
Um, there's not really any crying out for that to happen. It doesn't make a ton of sense why that had to happen, uh, but it still passed and Indigo just obliged. Um, there was an attack. Uh, so the state house insisted on creating a ballot referendum if uh, Mary County wanted to raise taxes to pay for the bus rapid transit. Uh, it seemed very popular, but the state house was pretty clear that they passed this to try to kill bus rapid transit because whenever you have to ask people on a ballot, Hey, you ready to give the government more money? Uh, that's a hard sell, right? Um, even for people yeah. who yeah. like good things, uh, if you have the choice to say, click, click no to pay less money, many folks will do that. Right. Um, sure. ironically, when we had that ballot initiative, uh, it passed, it passed with Taxpayers saying, yes, charge me more taxes. That's what I want for these dedicated lane uh, bus lines. Uh, and in fact, it passed by a wider margin than Senator Aaron Freeman has ever won re-election uh, or election to the state house. So people enjoy paying taxes more than they like being represented by Senator Aaron Freeman. Uh, it's my funny little jab. Um, yeah. Okay, well, what's this Freeman guy got against buses like why does this even affect his district at all it does technically and so if you were to ask Aaron Freeman if I was to try to steal man his argument and present it the best possible way he would say hey there's big portions of Marion County that don't really get much benefit from Indigo because you know again it's bigger than New York City it's really hard to get buses all the way out to the county line and he does have a tiny shred of his district that goes along Washington Street, which is where the blue line comes in. So he does kind of have a dog in the fight, you know, and he would say, you know, this is just overreach by the city of Indianapolis. Um, you could look up what he said about the city and the press. I mean, he has never hesitated to call us stupid, to say it's dumb. Uh, local government doesn't know what they're doing. And we shouldn't get home rule or local rule while we're doing things like so foolishly. Um, yeah, look up his quotes. I, I don't want to misquote him, but they're pretty, pretty intense. Uh, the, the quote was, <laughs> I'm all for local government until it's stupid. Right. End quote. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, he would have a point, like I'm all for, uh, you know, challenging our elected leadership when they're not representing the will of the people, but you can't get very much more clear in this state than a ballot initiative saying, would you pay more money to, to believe in this vision? And we did, and we agreed. And so, you know, it's like when you disagree with someone, right? Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And the facts on the ground are pretty clear that this is widely popular among the people it would most impact. And it's part of a bigger plan that I think will win over more people as we go. So I never actually finished that thought. Once we get these uh, huge lions running through the district, the red going north, south, we've got the blue, then we've got the purple. That enables us to move to a rotator system rather than a hub and spoke system. So all the problems about riding the bus today could start to go away and you could easily go north and south, not just downtown or back out. Um, you know, there will be more investment needed. There will be more growth needed. But when we look at other cities our size, we're just falling far behind. And so it's absolutely necessary. Um, so there are a lot of reasons people like this. Your question was, why does Senator Aaron Freeman not like this? And I told you the, the good faith attempt at understanding his position, what he says. And then I will tell you what is actually going on instead. So what is actually going on is he takes more money from the automotive industry than any other person at the state of Indiana. 
Uh, Ray Skillman in particular is a gigantic donor. It's made the news where, uh, am I allowed to just allege criminal behavior here on the podcast? Well, maybe I won't quite go so far. As long as you say alleged. Yeah. So, so allegedly, um, I think 14 different employees of Ray Skillman somehow managed to donate the maximum possible amount to Freeman's state house campaign, uh, which is very rare, right? Like large corporations often will make big donors. Their CEO, big, big donations. CEOs often will as well. But for even high ranking leaders to all max out their personal donations seems very fishy. And uh, I would love to just see any evidence for or against the supposition that this was illegally funneled money. It was somebody making donations on behalf of someone else, kind of a straw man version of a political donation. Yes. It would be super illegal. Uh, there are rumors I've heard, which I can neither confirm nor deny, that uh, allege that Senator Freeman drives five Corvettes, some of which might not even be in it. At the same time? Now, that's impressive. Right, yeah. Woo-hoo. Sorry, that won't translate well <laughs> the audio format, but imagine me trying to drive five cars with that. That's what I just said. Uh, no, he has five in his garage uh, so that he can drive whichever one makes sense that day. Uh, the rumor is that not all of them are titled to him. Some might still be in Ray Skillman's name that he just lets him keep in the garage and drive around, uh, which, if true, would read to me like an illegal campaign contribution. Uh, perhaps there's nothing to these rumors, and so you know I don't want to allege that this is factual, but I've never heard him uh, respond to these allegations, and so it does make me wonder. But so Senator, uh, or, yeah, Senator Freeman receives not only from Ray Skillman, but from numerous other... Uh, employers and businesses who work in the automotive industry who if you can put two and two together would have a vested economic interest in making sure people are stuck driving at all costs and would not be able to go carless and you know ride the bus to and from work um one thing that i find really interesting though is that freeman's biggest donor was not ray skillman his biggest donor was the indiana republican party so he is in a fairly quote-unquote safe seat uh more on that later because i think we're gonna unseat him but he's in a a pretty historically quote-unquote dark red district where a democrat doesn't have a chance and yet he receives tens of thousands of dollars from the state party it seems like there would be no reason to give him so much money since he doesn't need it to get reelected. however my contention is that senator freeman is playing a role i don't think you go to the newspaper to insult indianapolis on purpose unless your job is to play the WWE heel and be the designated bad guy. He is the equivalent of Joe Manchin to the Democratic Party at the federal level. He is the one who the other Republicans could say, wow, gosh, we're a reasonable party, but this guy, what a jerk. I wish we could do what you say, but man, ah, this Freeman fellow, we just can't get past him. Gosh. Uh, And let him collect the heat for uh, what they all want to do, which my supposition is... They want Democrats in Indianapolis to look weak and useless so that turnout in Marion County stays as low as it is. Uh, So Destiny Wells, who I attended her campaign kickoff for Secretary of State last week, she would be our Secretary of State rather than absolutely criminal Diego Morales if Marion County had turned out even to 2018 levels. So Marion County's lack of voter turnout is literally killing Democrats' chances of retaking the state house, retaking any statewide office ever. And what I learned while locking doors was that people don't vote for Democrats here because they don't see the point. They don't see that Democrats are fighting for them. They don't see that their lives could possibly change. They think that they're doomed and can never beat the supermajority. And they're not hearing their elected officials say anything differently than that. 
And so my conspiracy theory, if you, you know, imagine me putting the yarn and the push pins on the wall, what I think is happening is the Republicans aren't killing the blue line or aren't trying to kill the blue line because they hate buses. They're not trying to kill the blue line because they're in bed with the automotive industry. Those are just positive little side effects. What they're really trying to do is make sure Indianapolis leadership looks ineffective and weak so that they are politically powerless in the context of the state and so that the state house can continue chipping away at local control until they gobble us up completely. Maybe that sounds ridiculous, but I think there's ample evidence and I would welcome a conversation with anybody who's looked into it and disagrees. I mean, it must be demoralizing as as a resident of the city. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's demoralizing as a, uh, a resident of the state with, you know, left political leanings to, to, to know that we're, we're not represented at all. You know, the state's so gerrymandered. We really don't have any, any way to, uh, uh affect what's going on in the state house. And yeah, it, it, it must be, it must be demoralizing and you want, you want somebody to go out there and fight for you. So this is where I've been working. Um, apparently you're pissing some people off or at least according to uh james briggs in the indianapolis star you are upsetting the quote palatable moderate brand unquote that uh you know joe hogsett the mayor and uh other indianapolis democrats have worked to cultivate uh over the last what couple decades yeah yeah uh so (laughs) really interesting that James Briggs came out with that article. And I know you and I talked a little bit before we started recording about this, but I think James is a good enough guy. And he went out of his way to be very kind and reasonable on a personal level. And so, you know, I'm not really interested in, you know, screw James Briggs, let's rally the torches and pitchforks. Uh, not at all. I think that he's bringing important pieces of conversation into the public sphere. Um, but yes, I think that you need to have a long-term strategy, right? So... The focus of Briggs's article has been over tactics when I have not heard any discussion over strategy. Strategy would involve what is our path to winning back the state house? What is our path to getting a majority and maybe even a supermajority? I don't think supermajority is actually good for democracy, but sure, let's at least try to swing the pendulum back the other way. How do we win statewide races? How do we get a supermajority or a majority even in either house of the legislature? And as an elected official in the Democratic Party, I've never had anyone explain how that could possibly happen other than people who are endorsing strategies like the one I'm pursuing today. And so tactically, you know, the the strategy or the, the, the tactics that Briggs proposes of essentially backroom deals, right, of hiding during the legislative session, working with moderate Republicans to try to uh, evade the worst of their right flank. Um, I don't have any problem with those tactics. I think that they are wise when we are in the position of being in a super minority. And what we've seen over and over again, that the state will come and, you know, put their hand in our cake just to laugh and watch us uh, cry. Right. So I am not taking anything off the table or saying, nope, no backroom deals. No, no clever political calculations. Like, no, we should be doing all of that. Absolutely. Uh, and Neither am I saying that I've done everything perfectly. As we talked about at the beginning of this, I'm one month into being a public official. I'm still screwing some stuff up and learning some stuff. My whole life long, I will be screwing some stuff up and learning some stuff, so that's not going to change. But I hope to 
uh, <laughs> be off the mark by a little bit less in the future. You know, and I know one thing, I, yeah, I'm a socialist. So I believe that individuals don't make change. It's when we work collectively that we can make change. And, you know, the, the first Briggs article, I think, pointed out the fact that some of my peers who I really respect on the council felt like I was going against them. And that's one thing I really regret. And I think that's on me. I should have done a much better job explaining myself and getting buy-in. Um, but I guess I'm dancing around the issue. So what I did is I decided we are going to fight. And I'd like a couple minutes to explain how I came to that conclusion, which again, start from the point where I'm not saying I did it perfectly because I didn't, but I hope in explaining where I came from, you know, listeners might have a better, I, well, I think probably who's left listeners are already on my side, quite frankly, but just in case anybody's hate this <laughs> podcast episode, um, what happened at first? We agreed in principle in the Democratic caucus meeting in January. And I'm going to be kind of vague about this because, again, it's a confidential meeting, uh, not attempting to lay anything out there. But we agreed, keep your heads down, stay away from the state house, don't poke the bear during a session, right? Because, you know, we've seen in previous years, we'll try to get some progressive legislation passed and the session will suddenly swarm like Wu-Tang to, uh, you know, find us and, and pass preemption that stops us from getting our policies passed. The no turn on right bill last year was a good example. Um, so that made sense to me. You know, there was an ask, are we all in agreement? You know, I think we all gave thumbs up and nods. Um, we didn't take a vote on it. And it's only when you vote that it's a binding caucus position that you have to, you know, take with you. But I did agree in principle that that was the good strategy. So Senate Bill 52 is Senator Aaron Freeman's latest attempt to kill the blue line. And he's doing it through the bad faith uh, claim that he's not opposed to the blue line. He's not opposed to buses at all. Really, the only thing he's opposed to is the dedicated lanes portion. Because really, that's not what uh, bus rapid transit should be. Marion County voters didn't know about that when they voted on the referendum. Business owners have these concerns. And so really, you know, he's just asking for a pause. He just wants, you know, us to study it a little bit more. Uh, that that would be his claim. It's all lies. Right. Um, you know, I was at the state house. I did not testify because of the agreement we made as counselors. Um, I did support. Uh, I, I did help constituents get to the state house. I stood and talked with them and kind of uh, slapped them on the back and, and appreciated them being there and stood there for, I want to say, four and a half hours as dozens and dozens of people testified against this bill. Um, there were only a handful of businesses that testified in favor of the bill. Almost none of them mentioned dedicated lanes at all. They were worried about uh, damage to their business during construction, which would happen regardless of whether there were designated lanes. So it seemed like that was in bad faith and their arguments were just complaining, but not actually to do with the bill being proposed. Um, but while I was there, uh, if you haven't been to the state house in a while, if you can't make it into the committee room because every seat is filled, which is what happened for Senate Bill 52, there are areas outside where they live stream the meeting on audio video. So there's big TV and everybody can gather around and watch it outside in the hallway. Uh, there were so many people at the state house for this bill that some people were also standing a little further away and pulling it up on their phones because you could go to iga.in.gov and see live recordings of the testimony. So... I was not even in the committee room, but I was paying attention to the testimony that was going on. And what I saw was 
dozens of people testifying, pouring their hearts out, trying to explain from an emotional level, like why they were opposed to this bill and what it would do to kill the blue line. Uh, I'm talking business owners, uh, neighborhood associations, uh, business interests in terms of downtown Indy and visit Indy uh, and the Chamber of Commerce, like testimony after testimony. But the thing that really bothered me, there were two things that really bothered me. Number one, Giacomo Pizza, which used to be my favorite pizza place uh, when I was growing up. I grew up in Irvington before I've spent the 15 years uh, I've been in my house here, uh, one district over from Giacomo. They were always my favorites. I'd bring people from across the city there. They walked right past 50 of their neighbors were like, oh, hey, hey, can we talk to you? Uh, ignored all of that, went into the committee room and gave a really bad faith testimony saying to kill the blue line. Uh, that really bothered me. The thing that bothered me the most, though, was Senator Freeman sitting on his phone, leaning back in his chair, just texting during several people's testimony without looking up once or apparently listening to anybody talking, um, including a woman named uh, Cassandra Crutchfield, whose daughter Hannah Crutchfield famously uh, died after being hit by a reckless driver right on the path of the blue line at Washington and uh, Audubon, Washington Ritter. Um, so she's explaining, you know, how her seven-year-old daughter died and why she's involved in this safety work and why she thinks that the safety upgrades that would be part of the blue line project could save more children's lives. And Freeman does not even look up from his phone once. And to me, you could have political disagreements with someone. I frequently meet with people who disagree with me, but that's just rude. That's that's just spiteful. Yeah. Like, how would you not look someone in the eye and at least thank them for being here and say you'll consider it, right? You don't even have to mean it, but why not at least be decent and civil to another person? So Counselor Nielsen and I... Um, you know, left that hearing and both were just pretty frustrated. It did pass out of committee and it's moved on since then. Uh, but the attitude, the tension in the room or in the hallway as we were all leaving was just incredibly frustrating. I was trying to help calm people down because there was a lot of F-bombs being thrown. A lot of people just, just watching firsthand as their democratic choices are just trampled or ignored. Uh, and so... I felt really frustrated because, yes, I had agreed. Let's keep our heads down. And yet, here are a bunch of constituents wanting leadership and seeing none. And I took that personally and found it to be my job. So I tried to think about what can I do to influence this without, you know, making a bunch of noise at the state house the way I had said I would try not to do. And so I thought, well, okay, I do have that personal connection with the Giacomo owners. Maybe I'll just mention, hey, you know what? Maybe it doesn't mean anything, but. I used to love Giacomo. I'm never spending a dime again after what they just did today. Uh, so thanks in part by right-wing media uh, misrepresenting what I said and claiming I was organizing a boycott or, you know, attempting to uh, draw and quarter the owners of Giacomo. Uh, I got 45,000 views on that tweet, which is by far the most views I've gotten on anything I've ever written. Right, like uh, diatribes on socialism, on local governance, of uh, all sorts of different topics. <laughs> but me saying I'm disappointed at a pizza place that I'm not going to shop there in the future somehow became the most uh, impressive thing I'd ever written. And I got a lot of feedback immediately that it looked like I was bullying businesses or 
uh, trying to force people to kowtow to my democratic socialist line. And if they stepped <laughs> out of line, I'd shut them down. Um, you know, I think some of that was in good faith. And I talked with some business owners in my district who were worried about that. And I, you know, offered a mea culpa and promised I would never do something like this to a business in my district. And I also would never, uh, never do something like this as a first resort. You know, I had actually had to, I tried to have other conversations first that were shut down. So, you know, I got I got messaging from fellow counselors and council staff saying, you sound like a bully. This is terrible. You can't be doing this. And so as a like, cool noted, I appreciate that. I know my social media strategy is much different from any politician I've ever seen. And I'm going to screw some stuff up sometimes. But the last thing I want is for people to, to think I'm a jerk or that I don't appreciate differing opinions. So I thought about it all weekend. I was like, OK, so I've. I, Agreed that I can't do state house stuff. And yet the people are just absolutely crying out for some sort of leadership, some path forward for punishing Freeman for this stance and uh, delivering some sort of electoral victory. And I didn't see anybody else stepping up. And so I was like, well, you know what I do have? Because I have script kitty skills at WordPress at a website where I could put something up. I have a campaign account that's set up and ready to receive donations. The Act Blue is already going, and I could do a new branded page really quickly. Uh, maybe I'm just going to start. I'm going to start trying to collect volunteers and donors, even though we don't even have a candidate to run against Freeman yet, and just show that the appetite is out there for Democrats to actually fight. And uh, I mean, in some ways, the rest is history. We that blew up really quickly. Uh, we now have close to $6,000 in donations pledged before we have actually even united around a candidate. We have, uh, last time I checked, so it's gone up since there, but there were 109 unique donors from 33 different cities, uh, 30 of them in the state. And I think it was like 50 different zip codes. Um, so it wasn't just like Democratic strongholds. It was people all over the state who agreed with this fight, wanted to join, wanted to put their personal money on the line even before we even knew that we'd have a candidate. Uh, we organized a meeting at a pizza place to prove I'm not anti-pizza, nor am I anti-small business, and uh, bought several hundred dollars worth of pizza and drinks and had, I think, about 50 people show up and talk about how we could organize and fight. I put on a training that uh, my my awesome former campaign manager, Liz Johns, uh, helped me put that on, and we had 25 people show up, and uh, I think 50 more have viewed the recording of it. Te just teaching people the basics of how do you win an electoral campaign, even when the money is on the other side, even when you're not getting institutional support from the Democratic Party. Because if there's one thing I'm an expert on, it's doing that in Indiana lately, right? So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So my goal has always just been organize people, defeat Freeman electorally. Um, I think that, first off, this is a winnable campaign. We're going to win it you know, get out your uh, DraftKings or whatever. I'll put the bet down now. But even if you don't think we can win, I think this is an important fight to take on because the metaphor I always use is a schoolyard bully. If the Republicans right now are much bigger and stronger than us based on having the supermajority, mm -hmm. they can win any fight they really put their minds to. But right now what they're doing is the equivalent of shaking us down every day for our 40 cents at lunch money. That is a fight not worth fighting unless you don't think there will ever be any consequences to you. We only need to give them a black eye one time for them to stop picking on us for the petty stuff and really take us a little bit more seriously and be a little bit more considered about how they fight us. They're still going to fight us. They're still going to win. We're still going to get kicked around the field for now while we're building our electoral majority. But 
we can immediately see payoffs in the treatment from Republicans to our city when we prove that we can inflict political consequences on the worst offenders. Yeah. So, what really bothered me about these two Briggs articles last week and then again uh, today, February 12th, is is the complaint that like the state house they you know they've got a super majority they can do whatever they want and uh democrats are trying to build bridges i guess to you know these republicans that so they can keep things from being worse and that is not very inspiring he says well, Demo Democrats can't win on votes, so all they can do is keep things from getting worse. They're never going to be able to win on votes if all they're offering is, well, it could have been worse. That's right. Like, we're going to, we're going to, it could have been worse our way into fascism if, if, if we do this at a national level. The super funny thing to me is a week before... Briggs kind of took his broadside against me, uh, which I kind of welcomed. I actually think it helped me politically in a number of different ways. So I'm not, again, trying to insult the guy himself. But if he looks at what he wrote one week earlier, it was an article, an opinion essay about the fact that Hogshead has had a cozy relationship with Holcomb and both were reasonable men who could meet behind closed doors and hash out ways to move forward on policy. His article was about the fact that that will no way in hell be possible next year with Governor Braun which is where all the good money says the governor's race is going. And so oh. he's simultaneously saying this strategy is not going to work anymore. Also, we have to put all our eggs in that strategy's basket. It just, to me, is internally inconsistent, and I would love to hear a response from him on how that makes sense. One of the reasons I think Indiana has a reputation as a red state, okay, and why strongmen authoritarians like Donald Trump and Mike Braun are popular here. As bad as they are, as bad as all of their policies are, they're belligerent fucks. And they th they have convinced enough people incorrectly that, that they're fighting for them. Mm -hmm. People want a fighter. Okay? And like, it, the, the reason obviously, there's a lot of reasons. Democrats have not had electoral success in this state for the last 20 years. But um, a big reason is Hoosiers like a good fight. And the Democratic Party hasn't been particularly tough or looking for a fight. You know, they, they Joe Hogg said, I tell you what I do, I hide. That's yep. not inspiring. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to, uh, you know, like be on record as uh, insulting the mayor, but I will say that many of my constituents and supporters have said that should be electorally damning to say something like that in the press, intentionally hoping it gets published, which it's hard for me to argue with that point. I don't even know why you're in politics at that point. If <laughs> the job is to hide. Like, what are you doing? <sighs> All right. Well, Jesse, I... For one, appreciate that you're down for a fight. You know, I think that's that's an important quality to have, especially when we're we're coming from the underdog position, right? And you know, my strategy all along, and and Briggs did try to mention this in the first article, and I think it kind of got distorted a bit. 
But my strategy was not to force every Democrat in the city or state to adopt my strategy or die. And my strategy is never to put other Democrats on blast or critique them publicly by name um, or anything like that. But literally, I, I, I'm so serious about this. I think without Briggs' article, I would have been expelled from the Democratic caucus that day for fighting Republicans, which to me just seems incredibly backwards and it will never make sense to me. Um, I understand that we need to work as a team and I understand that we work better, we're stronger together, right? Better collectively, agree with all of the above. But in a world where Freeman gets to make outrageous attacks on the city, you know, uh, quoted in the press as calling us stupid and to get still moderates can be seen as part of the same party and working, you know, towards maybe the same policy goals, but in a different way. It seems odd that Democrats would intentionally put handcuffs on and restrict themselves from even that sort of policy. You know, I've been very upfront with my, you know, I, for as much as my name has been in the press, uh, it might be hard to believe this, but I actually don't have much personal political ambition in terms of getting my name on stuff, right? So I would be nothing but happy if uh, for these four years, not a single bill passed with my name on it and I never got credit for anything, but we got some progressive policy that helped save my constituents' lives and improve things. I would so happily you know, lose a primary, go back to making four times as much money in the tech world and know that the city... <laughs> and I really don't want to be the hero of Indianapolis. Uh, as my wife always teases me, she says, Jesse, you are not Batman, right? Like, it's not me. It's us. It's not about Jesse Brown. It's about the group of people coming together and fighting. And the only reason I did what I did is because I saw that group, like, inchoate and unable to really express itself and unequipped with the tools it would take to actually turn their impotent rage into potent rage, to quote my training. And so I just saw, hey, you know, one thing I can do is I can point these folks in the right direction and give them the skills it would take to really cause problems for the Republicans. And that's what my constituents want me to do. That's what I'm going to do. I don't work for other Democrats. I work for my constituents. My targets are aimed very squarely on the worst of the Republicans, and I will be coming for them, and we will be unseating them one at a time, starting with Aaron Freeman this November. And my only ask to other Democrats is please don't stand between me and the Republicans. It really shouldn't be so much to ask. Help or get out of the way. Mm hmm. Exactly. All right, Jesse, any final words for uh, the listeners here? No, nah, I express myself perfectly as always. Drop the mic. Pew, pew, pew. No, but uh, just kidding. Uh, yeah, always down for a conversation. Um, you know, please, anybody listening to this, look me up on my website. I would love to chat. I would love to get a beer or a coffee, especially if you disagree with me. I always have a lot to learn from people who are smart people who disagree. Uh, yeah, would love to chat to hear your perspectives because mine are less important than yours. But other than that, yeah, great show. Thank you very much, uh, Jesse Brown, ladies and gentlemen, Indianapolis City Council, District 13. Thank you once again for joining the Who's Love podcast. Huge pleasure. Thank you, sir. Once again, that was Indianapolis City Council member for District 13, Jesse Brown. So I want to talk about the Indianapolis Democratic officials with whom Jesse has been sparring and Indiana Democrats at large. Quote, I know what other Democrats are trying to achieve, says Indy Star's James Briggs in a February 12th column. Returning to the quote, they're building bridges to Republicans in the legislature who either represent central Indiana or are sensitive to the region's needs. End quote. 
In that article, he goes on to list several examples of Democrats working behind the scenes to file down the sharpest edges off uh, Republican legislation to bring it from 100% terrible to maybe 95% terrible to get just a little more gruel in their bowls. Please, sir, I want some more. Briggs continues, quote, Make no mistake, that result was a loss for the city, but as is often the case with Indianapolis-focused legislation, it could have been worse, end quote. He acknowledges this as loser mentality, but concludes that fighting back is basically just a tantrum and we should accept our gruel. Quote, Leftists need a theory for how they can build the city they want. If their fighting is purely a matter of catharsis, then they have more of a loser's mentality than the moderates they loathe. End quote. Oh, bless your heart, Puddin'. That's adorable. Briggs still thinks Republicans negotiate in good faith, that they aren't meat puppets whose donors, no, owners, hands are shoved so far up their asses that they can make their lips move. Make no mistake, who's doing the talking? You big dummy! Freeman embodies this. He doesn't negotiate, he doesn't even give grieving mothers the appearance of caring. His mind is made up. By his owners. Careful shaking Ray Skillman's hand. Don't poke the bear, they say. Run and hide. Build bridges. For the fascists to march over... People are looking for leadership, for a fighter, someone who will stand up to the bully instead of negotiating down from a beating to a wedgie. Republicans are terrible, but their masters pull the strings so effectively, Hey, I thought they shoved the hands up the ass like a sock puppet. Whatever, work with me here, it's a metaphor. They pull the strings so effectively you'd be convinced elected Republicans were fighting for you instead of against you. At least it looks like they're fighting. Pardon the gendered and uh, misogynistic language I'm going to use for the next minute or so, but the people are hungry for some balls. Wait, check that. The people are hungry for someone that's got some balls. Someone who'll tell it like they see it. Someone who will dare to go big. Again, Republicans are terrible, but bringing back Nazis certainly is a bold strategy. Indiana Democrats have to quit being such pussies, especially in the face of the, you know, Nazism. We make ourselves look weak. People don't want your detailed policy plan when the bully is taking their lunch money. Look, I'm glad we actually have detailed policy plans on the left. They certainly don't on the right. They are absolutely necessary. But we have to be both the brightest kid in the class and the one who will punch the bully in the nose. I want a fighter in the streets and a wonk in the sheets. S spreadsheets. As a Hoosier Democrat, and I'm just a lowly precinct committee person, boot me if you must, but the strategy of the last 15 to 20 years has not worked. I understand 
to use the word of author David Daly, who wrote a book uh, about its consequences by this name, the 2010 red wave election completely rat-fucked this state. We've been trapped in a shrinking, gerrymandered corner ever since. It's fight-or-flight time. And for the marginalized people of this state, there are fewer and fewer places to run. Briggs opened his February 5th article, quote, A Democratic Socialist is rebranding Indianapolis as radical left, and it could cost the city at the state house." end quote. One guy on the flank of the party going to bat for his constituents does not exactly constitute a rebrand. It's more like rebranding our party as one with a fucking pulse. We don't all have to become socialists but we do need to change our tone. Hoosiers want a fighter. What's the worst that happens? We lose? Again? I'll be back next week. Until then, this has been the Who's Left Podcast. I'm Scott Aaron Rogers. Love each other, Indiana. Indiana.